Getting Better Acquainted's sister show, Stand Up Tragedy, is going up to the Edinburgh Festival. We're going to be doing an hour of tragedy every day as part of the PBH Free Fringe at the Banshee Labyrinth Banqueting Hall from the 2nd till the 24th of August. If you're in Edinburgh, come along and see the tragedy. Also, Getting Better Acquainted, for five days only, we'll be doing live conversations at the Royal Oak at 3.15pm every day from the 18th till the 22nd of August. So come and get better acquainted at the Edinburgh Festival. And the minister really addressed what was going on in that space. He gave it permission to exist. And somehow by saying it, by acknowledging it, you could feel that he kind of did take people through that journey. Like, And I got that real sense of here of, wow, this is what a funeral is for. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Tim Ralphs. Hello, Tim. Hello, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. The first question I ask everybody is, how do you know me? So I think we first got in touch via email in the sort of general rumbling avalanche that is the build-up to the Edinburgh Fringe yeah. Festival. Um, I can't remember, because I think actually several people introduced us simultaneously. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'd, hadn't, I'd never heard of you, and then suddenly you were everywhere. That was good. I mean, it was, you know, it was interesting. But yeah, so we're up in, in Edinburgh at the moment mm-hmm. uh, as part of the, uh, the 2014 Fringe, if, whenever you're listening to that. This is when it's happening. Um, and yeah, I think it was a storytelling, like the, there's a, a national storytelling like, uh, newsletter, really. Yeah, so the Society for Storytelling, uh, I think, is the people that probably first put us in touch. Right. And they have a London area rep who um, who is really good and was really on the ball. And I think she's covered, uh, I don't know if it's Stand Up Tragedy or some of your other projects that she's... Yeah, she, kn- yeah, she knows me through Spark London first that and then Stand Up Tragedy secondarily. Although she's a little bit sort of, she, it, she doesn't... she. She's aware that Stand Up Tragedy doesn't just do storytelling, and so she's she's sort of like make, making sure that we're we're definitely doing storytelling when she's recommending us, which is absolutely reasonable. Mm-hmm. Uh, this but, is Pippa Reed who we're talking that's about. Right. If Pippa's listening, hi. <laughs> and yeah, and Stand Up Tragedy does always have storytelling in it, so we do fit, but we don't seem to necessarily fit. So, but when when I when I uh, explained that to her this time, she said, "Oh, Tim Ralph's." going to be there and uh, hooked us up with that email mm-hmm. and uh, I think I you know I booked you uh, to perform <laughs> at that stage having not met you very brave of you yeah well you're in the same you're in the same room that we are um, and you're part of the free fringe like we are and I don't have a home to go to so like <laughs> I just kind of hang around trying to be wallpaper so yeah yeah well exactly <laughs> I mean yeah exactly ever, ever since I've been in Edinburgh I think I've, I've definitely seen you every single day mm. um and you know, it, so it's 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 and it's and then I saw your show after a while of of knowing you and uh, pleasingly it's really excellent. I really like it, uh, which was great because that made me think, oh, I've done the right thing booking him. It would have been terrible, <laughs> hadn't it, if you saw the show and said, oh no, this is dire. How do I extricate myself from having booked him to yeah. appear at stand up tragedy? But I suppose the joy with stand up tragedy is that you can be a bit meta about it. Yeah. Like sometimes you'll have people, and for whatever reason. Um, what they're doing isn't quite right for that moment. And and when there's that slight, um, that sense that the audience isn't really going with them, that also works. Yeah. Because it, it, yeah, it's just taking the tragedy to being there in the room with right. the people. No, I always say that about mm. my hosting. If I, if I host it terribly, it's just, it's just tragic in a different way. <laughs> But I mean, but that, that's true. And anyway, one of the things we like to do at Santa Tragedy is why I, I take a risk occasionally, like mm. an educated risk, hopefully, but uh, but a risk on people I have don't quite know what they're going to do. And this isn't an open invitation to people I don't know, just uh, <laughs> cold calling me, basically. My life is very sad. I yeah. have written a poem. Right. I mean, but well, that actually, that might be more likely to, to, to make, get, <laughs> I might book them more likely than somebody who gives me like, here's all of the credits I've done, but I can't send you any evidence mm, of anything I've done. Oh, okay. That would make me more nervous. 
but um, but yeah, I'm, I'm actually I, I booked someone a comedian on for 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 the for the fringe who basically she sent me a. A, an email saying how terribly how she'd only just started she wasn't very good she was so self-critical of all of her stuff that I just thought yeah she wants to get better therefore she's going to try and do something really good. and she was really good when she performed mm. so that's and that's one of the things I want on at Stand Up Tragedy I want established safe pairs of hands if you like on the on the bill but I also want um, up and coming and new completely yeah. new like it's been my pleasure to have some people perform for the first time ever on the Stand Up Tragedy stage right next to you know Robin Ince or Josie Long, you know, mm. that's kind of, I like the excitement of not knowing what the hell's going to happen next. Absolutely. But, uh, so that was, you know, but it was still, re- it was still, nevertheless, it was reassuring to discover that you, you, you were a safe pair of hands uh, and could be considered in that, that part of the, uh, the bill. And that's how we know each other, basically. A lot of the time I do these conversations, I know people that I'm talking to very well. Other times I know, you know, a few areas of their life, at least, uh, to, to get started uh, but but with you um, I, I've seen you quite a lot we know each other we like each other but uh, I don't know very much about your your life or who it's you are behind it? that we have this kind of uh, the shared daily experience of, right. um, of being at the Banshee Labyrinth in Edinburgh um, doing our respective things and then actually yeah so it's good it's an ideal opportunity yeah. to be acquainted it's, it's like when you I sat next to a guy who I worked with for years um, and I knew that he had had a wife who had um, left him, and I knew he had a new partner. And then, in about the last week before he left, I got the story of how, when his first wife left him, she ran off with another guy whose partner that he had run away from as well was the woman that he was now with. It was like this weird kind of dancing partner swap had happened, sure. which is a great story. And it, but you only find out these things. Um, when you actually kind of create almost the situations where right. conversations take place. Well, in a way, that's kind of what, yeah, that, that's in a way, that's the kind of, that's the design of this podcast is to, to, to force me into situations where I actually really do get to know mm. the people mm-hmm. who I know mm. better. So, so this is, yeah, so we're in, the, we're in the right space for this one. So the second question that I ask everybody is, what do you do now? And you can take that however you like. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, Okay, so I have two, I guess, jobs. I'll just talk about that, that's fine. Um, (laughs) I have two jobs, and one of those is I work as a storyteller, and the other of those is that I do work as an interfaith minister. And the storytelling work is mostly performance-based, though I am at the moment doing a lot of work with Sheffield University, helping their uh, postgraduates and early careers researchers tell stories about their research, which is, I mean, that's just so rewarding because you have these people who are very knowledgeable about their subjects and really passionate about their subjects but through the whole academic process have gotten steadily more kind of withdrawn in a lot of cases and and more and more reluctant to um, yeah to actually have conversations about what it is that they do so it can be really yeah it can be really good to, to kind of meet with them to find out what their problems are to explore uh, the issues that they may or may not have and then get to stage in time where there are sort of festivals and things being organised up in uh, Sheffield where we've got academics just chatting about their research and it's all it's all interesting um, so it's nice to have unlocked that a little bit Yeah. Uh, and then I do a lot of performance work which is what I'm doing up here at Edinburgh I've got a show called Rebranding Beelzebub which is a collection of traditional devil stories um, devil folk tales, and then I suppose I be a bit more of it, and then stories that are maybe not traditional but are heavily inspired by traditional motifs from the the, the folk story world. Um, that I've kind of I've strung those all together in a, uh, a quite a light-hearted frame around me meeting the devil. Yeah, um, and that's one of a, a kind of variety of of pieces on repertoire that, that I produce as and when they're needed yeah I mean and your 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 rebranding Beelzebub is I mean I really enjoyed it um, and I, Matt, I would definitely recommend anybody who's at the fringe at the moment going to see it um, the but uh, and one of the things you do with that is you kind of you take these traditional st- stories and then you uh, kind of repurpose them to the modern modern moment so mm. there's a lot of kind of like references to 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 
the, the lives we live now uh, mixed around these kind of traditional ideas of the, the devil. But it's interesting to me, I didn't know, so I didn't know that one of the things that you did was uh, working as an interfaith minister. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And so that's really interesting because obviously you're doing a show about the devil, but you're, one of your day jobs is to, I guess, uh, be, be, be batting for the other team rather than the yes, devil, right? all of the other teams. And I think <laughs> it, was, it was very interesting to go about putting together a show about meeting the devil while I was going through. I was going through my interfaith training at the time. And actually there are quite a few themes that that brought up that have, have ended up in the show. Because like, on, a, on a deep level, the show is sort of about getting over myself, me getting over myself, and kind of the, the yeah letting go of, of ego a little bit and accepting yeah. what it means to actually stand up on stage and tell people stories and you know whether or not that role actually is important um i have a lovely little uh scene in there where i talk about uh, this temptation i feel that the devil is going to offer me to become a storytelling rock star yeah um and it's nice almost to say that because saying that out loud is in some ways going this is never actually going to happen <laughs> right this is not what you're going to do is you're going to be um, performing in pub rooms and maybe little theatre spaces to audiences up to 100. Are you cool with that? Yes, I'm incredibly cool with that. That's a wonderful experience, but it's nice to almost build that into the show. Yeah, so I think the, the training, the interfaith training, and uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, yeah, the, the, the sort of what that brought up, it was nice to let those energies feed into. I mean, I guess it's inevitable if you're working in performance that whatever kind of inner journey you're on, you, you borrow from enormously yeah, and you right. it into your art. Right, right. Um, well, it works um, really well in your show as well because it's like the devil's offered you this this deal to come up to the Edinburgh Festival and do the show. And so that's a nice way of sort of like... Because uh, at the Free Fringe, we also have to do a sort of bucket speech to, tell, mm. to ask people if they want to donate because it's free to enter. But... In order for us to keep doing stuff, we need them to people to donate as much as they can afford at the end, and uh, that gives you an opportunity to sort of like get a little bit of that in uh, into the actual show, and yeah. I think that what makes it kind of makes it much more because it's a very performance based show, so it, it's kind of a, a little bit more awkward to do that bucket speech. So I think it works really nicely in that in the meta way for that. Mm. And I love and one of the things I love about storytelling is that um, you are in the room talking to the people that you're you're telling the stories to you know it's so in theater most theater let's ignore brecht for a moment but there's something almost slightly artificial about it you're you're kind of saying all right we want you we the performers want you the audience to pretend that um that's a balcony and i'm going to be romeo and that's going to be juliet and we're going to do all that and and almost theater lives or dies on your ability to um pretend that you are not actually sitting in a theatre right. watching things on a stage. Um, whereas with storytelling, you know, I can be far more open. You know, I, the, the, the devil isn't actually going to appear on stage. The, the journey, the narrative journey, is going to take place entirely in our sort of shared imagination. So I feel like I almost have a bit of a freedom that maybe a more classical theatre doesn't have to... So yeah, to make sort of little nods and references generally to the fact that you know we're all we're all in a place together. It was great when the lighting rig. We had this one gig where the lighting rig was mysteriously changing every <laughs> ten to fifteen minutes, um, and you just have such permission to acknowledge that in a storytelling show. Right. You know, to suddenly we've got a spot. All right, that's the light of the morning sun that's rising at this moment in the in the story. Um, but I was going to talk. We're talking a little bit about. The, the creative process and the life journey. Um, I'm working on a piece at the moment that is uh, it's based on a Norse myth, Norse saga, the marriage of Njord, who's this very sort of gentle, loving sea god, and Skadi, who's this absolutely ferocious mountain giantess. Um, and it's a very unlikely pairing. But it's really nice to be telling a story that is about a marriage. So many stories, especially the folk fairy tales, it's the kind of run up to the marriage, then you have a wedding, and then they all live happily ever after. And no, this one is a, it's not only does the wedding happen about 20 minutes into the show, um, 
you know it's going to be a really interesting marriage because they're so crazy and you get to see marriage as that great crucible of person making where people change each other and maybe they grow together um but i got married last september right so so those sort of energies and those themes of what what is marriage and how does that change you are things that are really prevalent to me at the moment and yeah I'm, i'm not saying that myself and my wife are in any way like um uh ferocious norse 30s but but I can see little bits about myself and and yeah, just the whole situation reflected in in that. But isn't that the thing? I think that's often the thing with stories or with any kind of art. Like when you sort of take the specifics, it makes it more universal. So when you like look at like you you might be very very different from whatever uh, marriage you're representing, but mm. by representing a specific marriage dynamic all of us in relationships or even not in relationships can relate to, you know, we can see ourselves, yeah. even if we're nothing like the thing that we're seeing, we still see something of ourselves uh, when, we're, when we're given those specifics. Um, in, 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 yeah, on, and I, I think that, that makes a lot, of, a lot of sense that you would sort of like uh, be drawn as well towards stories that are uh, the stories that will help you understand what you're actually going through in your life. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah. then the story that become also the stories that perhaps I have insight into. Right. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. So, that, you know, because I actually have something to say about about marriage now that 10 years ago, you know, 10 years ago I told stories that were sort of more trickster tales and that now there was a bit more horror and, and things like that. And I sort of look back and I go, all right, you know, it was right for me to be telling those stories then because I didn't understand, um, yeah, I didn't understand some of the some of the other topics in the same way yeah so so yeah so you're how did you become an interfaith minister like what what drew you to that oh that's a fabulous uh, question so i was trained and ordained through an organization called the one spirit interfaith foundation um who've been working over here since i think about the late 90s they have a sister seminary in new york um, that was set up slightly beforehand and then Someone from the New York somebody went, right, I'm going to take this training over to, to Britain and, and see what happens. Um, I'd been doing wedding ceremonies for my friends. Uh, we got to that stage in time that I'm sure a lot of people go to where you're in your early 20s and people start kind of pairing off and coupling up. Um, and so I had people that wanted spiritual ceremonies, you know, they wanted meaningful, very personal wedding ceremonies but they weren't of uh, Christian persuasion and you know the the registry office service is very strict in what it can and cannot include you know, right. it has to be yeah, entirely yeah. non-spiritual so for them you know, whilst they were going to have uh, services you know a little legal binding ceremony they wanted to have that great public ritual I go what is a wedding a wedding is um getting people together to witness the, the vows that you right. make to one another and then to celebrate and share in that in that love and they wanted to have that um, and so the first uh, the first it happened I think they, they asked me to do it because I'm quite loud and clear spoken uh, and I'm quite reliable and that, those, were the, <laughs> those were the two most important um, we shared certain sort of spiritual backgrounds as well so they brought me in. And then once I'd been seen to do one, like as more people in that kind of early to mid-twenties got to that stage in time, it was like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll get Tim to, to do our ceremony. So I'd done about, I don't know, four or five weddings for my friends. Um, and so I had, I had kind of had in me this idea that I might want to explore what it meant to be doing ceremony work. Uh, and then I had this very powerful experience my aunt committed suicide um, it came sort of out of nowhere she had postnatal depression and she got a lot of help just after her child was born and then a few years later it came back and I don't think the support was was there for her in the same way or people weren't expecting to um, her to need that support in the same way so for for a whole host of reasons um, very traumatically out of nowhere she killed herself, leaving behind her, her daughter, who was, you know, was only a couple of years old at the time. Um, and I went to the funeral, 
as you'd expect. And my family, that branch of my family, quite strictly atheist in their point of view. And the funerary ceremony was being conducted by a guy called the Reverend William Denning, Methodist minister. And I sort of expected that the funeral ceremony would be a formality, a formality that we'd go through, and then the actual kind of family coming together and maybe undergoing a shared grieving experience would take place over a cup of tea back at someone's house. Um, But the funeral was incredible. And the minister really addressed what was going on in that space, a jam-packed hall, he addressed what was going on. He like he named the fact that there were going to be people here who were very angry. Not he didn't give them name, but he named the emotion, the right. anger that they were feeling. You know, so he like he sort of he gave it permission to exist. Some people here are going to be really angry. Some people here are going to be blaming themselves for what has happened. Some people here are going to be angry at my aunt. Um, and somehow by saying it, by acknowledging it. Uh, you could feel that he kind of he kind of did take people through that that journey. Like, and I got that real sense of here of wow, this is what a funeral is for. This is what a funeral is for. And if that is a skill that can be learned, if there is something behind this that 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 I can understand, I want to be doing this in the world. You know, I, I kind of got a sense that it was that the wedding stuff. Um, not to say it's not important, yeah. but it was one part of a broader uh, role of ministry. Um, yeah, it was, it, was very, it was very powerful. And it was really clear, you know, he was very emotionally affected. He knew my aunt. He was emotionally affected by what was going on. But it was also clear that his faith supported him. Um, which was a bit tricky for me, because I... Um, I don't know. I kind of, I've kind of flitted between different religious practices. I like a lot of Buddhist practices. I was a, a practicing pagan um, during my student days, but I've sort of drifted beyond that. And even now, I kind of describe myself as a spiritually inclined humanist. Um, and it seemed to me like the the to go out and find people who could give. Um, training on that ministry role I needed people who were willing to go alright what is that ministry role but divorced from any particular religious understanding and the, the best way for me to find people who were divorced from any particular religious understanding were the people who wanted to say alright what is all of them <laughs> what is, right. and that was the that was the background of the One Spirit Interface Foundation was right. to kind of say if we if we look at um, the sort of shared truths of, of wildly different religious practice and fundamentally what that got down to was the the shared human experience which know? makes it very much almost when you when you sort of set it up you were like well, I have two jobs but they are arguably very much the same job in a weird way because the, the job of a storyteller is to create a shared human experience mm. and to, to draw on these especially the kind of stories that you work on like traditional stories that's what they were I mean when you're talking about the Norse uh, story that was a religious you know the, the, the Norse I mean I'm into Norse mythology and um, you know I, you know it's because it's if you're from the time like we are where we're, we're not very religious generally as a culture mm-hmm. you sort of you go oh these are great stories but you forget that they were also a religion they were also they, they were gods you know they were people worshipped those gods they they weren't as uh they didn't have the same relationship with those gods that we that some people have now like they didn't expect those gods to be nice to them um, but they did <laughs> but they did relate to them you know it, it was a spiritual practice as well so I mean that's interesting that you mm. have kind of the, these two things have kind of crossed over and you're doing both of them but they do they draw on the same techniques is there a difference between you know or you know what would you say about the difference or the similarities between the two yeah it's that's I mean that is something which uh, I'm still I was ordained last August and I still feel like that I sounds am. sounds really cool. Yeah, cool. yeah <laughs> technically I'm the Reverend Tim Rouse. But wow. I, 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 to come back to that, I did for a bit go by the Reverend Tim Rouse. And then I was at a storytelling workshop where I happened to mention um, that I was a minister. And someone else around the table took on this really sort of 
haunted expression and said, look, I, I feel like I need to apologize in advance. If any of my language is in any way offensive and I had to go, oh man, man you, <laughs> you are taking this far more seriously than I will. Maybe I'll step away a little bit from that, from that word reverend and from that, uh, the role, just because, yeah, it, religious institutions have, have been in some weird places of late and I can understand that, that being around someone who professes to be a minister can make some people uncomfortable. So I, I, I try not to be secretive about it, but I'm also not as in your face about it as I could be. So the, the crossover between um, storytelling and ministry yeah, I'm still exploring that. To me, there are a lot of differences. Like, uh, ministry is pure service. Whereas I think in some way, yeah, I'm not ashamed to say this, as a storyteller, um, I get quite a sense of, of validation out of that. Right. I quite enjoy if yeah. I tell a good story and people like it and they clap at the end. Yeah, I, I do feel, I don't deny, I feel good about that. Um, Whereas ministry is far more, to me, a listening art. It's far more about meeting with people, whether it's, you know, if I'm doing a wedding prep, meeting with those people and going, all right, what does this actually mean to you? When we create your vows, what is it that you actually want to promise one another? And often, you know, people have sometimes only the vaguest sense of, of, of you know, or they have a very powerful sense, sorry, vague is the wrong way, they have a very powerful sense, but when it comes to articulating it, it, it feels vague, because, you know, for a lot of people, they haven't thought about what marriage might mean exactly, what words might express the commitment they want to make. So, a lot of that process, I guess like this, is me gently teasing from them <laughs> uh, these things, and then, and then a lot of what I do in my ceremonies is just reflect back using their words as much as possible, reflect back um, what they've said. And so, yeah, so ministry is is pure service, and storytelling, for me, um, is is more of a performance. Yeah. But there are storytellers, you know, and there are storytellers who I really, really admire who, um, who will do a storytelling show and the first story will be a kind of feeling out. And beforehand, they'll have, they'll have tried to chat with the audience, they'll have met with them as, as best as they can. And a lot of what they do is they listen and they try and sit there and think, all right, what is the story that this audience needs to hear? Right. What is going on at the moment that I feel? Now, I don't have the repertoire to do that with any kind of you know, reliable effectiveness. I'm talking about people who've kind of grown up in storytelling traditions who maybe have you know, a thousand or more stories that they can call on right um, so I think I think in some ways I sort of hope that that one I'll be able to reconcile storytelling and ministry together um, in the future and that also maybe those things will, will feed into each other a bit more but yes just in terms of the sheer standing up and being confident to talk in front of people and holding a group of people sort of on an emotional journey and, and steering that um there are, like, there are similarities in, in Rome. Yeah, and, and how did you come across storytelling as a thing that you do? Because uh, there's lots of different... I mean, obviously you, you're interested in communicating with, and writing and all of those things, I should imagine. But th- there's loads of different options that you could have gone down, and storytelling's a very specific one, so yeah. Mm. Oh, so it's... Uh, I grew up as a child with a little bit of the folk revival. My parents were into the folk scene... Um, they assure me that as a baby my, my carry cot used to get left behind speaker stacks at Kaylee's because that was the quietest <laughs> spot where my parents did a bit of bit of folk dancing nice. so as a kid on the sort of folk festival scene I heard stories from, from people who were working as storytellers um, and as a middle class a white Brit in this country in some ways I'm kind of the first generation almost that has grown up with storytellers. Like there's been a real severance in our culture of you know, obviously there are, there are exceptions, there are people who may have been incredibly lucky, have heard family stories, have had family members that tell stories. Um but by and large it's an art form that um 
had either died out or had sort of lost its its place and its recognition. And in the 1980s, um, there was a big drive, a big revival movement. They were going to get traditional storytelling back as a as an art form. Um, and they put an awful lot of work into doing that. Well, I I didn't have to put a lot of work into doing that. Other people had already kind of created this mould of um, of being a storyteller, and I saw people like Hugh Lupton, Dan Kedding, Dovey Thomason growing up. Um, because my parents would often leave me at the, the storytelling events, <laughs> on the drives home I would be recounting all of the stories that I that I heard, which is which is, I guess, the first foray, the first step into storytelling, is, is, and also the best way to remember the stories is to repeat them again afterwards. Um, so that was the first part. When I was 17, I started a storytelling club in my school library. Kind of left it when I went to university until I was about 25 when, um, yeah, I was at a folk club and it had gone, it was one of those folk clubs, open spots, it goes around the room, everyone does a thing. It had gone around once, I hadn't really done anything because I don't sing. Um, which is a blessing on everyone really um, and then uh, it, it went around again and I said oh well I'll, I'll tell a story and I told the story and uh, the woman who was running the club enjoyed it asked me if I'd come along and tell some stories at a festival that she was doing um, and it sort of took off from there I, I was a part of the Young Storyteller of the Year competition because you can be a young storyteller up to 25 which is yeah. nice so that's when your young person's rail card goes as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> the rail card in the storytelling And I didn't win that. Uh, it was the year that Rachel Rose Reed uh, won it. But I did well enough that some festival organisers um, asked me to come along and, and tell a few spots there. Um, and I can remember going to Beyond the Border in the summer of 2007 and seeing Michael Harvey tell... Branwen's story from the Mabinogion. Um, and before that, I had only seen people tell sort of little 10, 15 minute folk tales, and then um, maybe they'd sing a song and then they'd tell another story, or play an instrument and tell another story. That was the first time I'd seen someone do long form storytelling where it's just for an hour or so one narrative that carries people. And it was amazing. I had a real moment of sort of sitting there and going, Wow, that's that's for me. That that's for me. Um yeah, that's what I want to try and try and get to the stage in time where where I'm doing. Um Yes, yeah, so I guess that's me and that's me in storytelling. I run a little club up in Sheffield at the Fat Cats called the Story Forge that meets on the third Tuesday of every month. Uh, it's been going for a good few years now. And I've only been doing this sort of storytelling and ministry as a as a full-time employment since last January. It's still quite quite new for me to be calling this Your job. the day job. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think I, I went um I went freelance as a storyteller. That's my that's what I call myself on my cards anyway, but I do very different things mm, to you. But mm. uh, yeah, in uh, in April of this year. So uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's it's, it's a, it, yeah, it's interesting in the early days, isn't it, when you're sort Absolutely. of starting to define yourself in these new ways. Yeah. How are you finding it? Well, I mean, it's hard to say because it's mostly been like uh, a blur of Edinburgh prep, right? <laughs> uh, and just trying to get whatever work I could around that to, to pay a few of the bills. Mm. Um, but I mean, I, I'm branding myself as a storyteller because basically there's so many things that I do that it's hard for me to find a, an overarching like umbrella term. Yeah. So, I mean, so a lot of most of the work I've been getting so far has been... Um, training people how to make podcasts and you know recording podcasts and editing them for people so uh, that kind of storytelling but mm-hmm. I, I I also do true storytelling and I get I have a regular gig uh, doing sp- hosting Sparkland in, in Hackney uh, and I we've been doing workshops with people teaching them how to do true stories so mm-hmm. there is an element that is that is genuinely storytelling rather than uh, having to sort of like push the things I do into storytelling I mean, I think the thing is, what I realise is that all of the things I do, and I call I often call myself a, a, a jack of all trades and a master of some, uh, <laughs> but uh, but I but all of the things I do 
is about creating narratives mm. and communicating them to audiences. So uh, whether it's writing or performance or, you know, whether it's spoken word, whether it's writing songs, they're, they're all broadly storytelling. Uh, or, and I think of conversations as a story um, when, I, when I'm editing them, when I'm, when, when I'm having them, I guess. I think of them as a story, but a kind of co-created story where you, you sort of go on this journey. And, and even, like, you know, the things that happen in a story happen in a conversation. You, you refer back to them, the things that come up mm. become important later on, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, although this 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 uh, particular story or conversation is is going to have an interesting influence of the rubbish truck going down the road behind us, yeah. interact, interacting into in, it with us. Maybe those beeps will be meaningful, or uh, maybe they'll be distracting, but at least they'll have an effect. Ah, on, venues, on, on the listener. Venues are such a thing. Well, yeah, that's really mm-hmm. true. Actually, I was thinking like vaguely in my head with these beeps going on behind us. It's kind of appropriate to an Edinburgh yeah. festival. Uh, podcast to have lots of distractions in the background for the audience because that's that can be our experience day to day right and one of the joys of being here in edinburgh for me has been seeing the diversity of things that people have called storytelling right because like the the, i I feel like i know you know the folky uh, storytelling world quite well but to come here and listen to say um Lucy Ayrton's The Splitting of the Mermaid right. which is you know it's definitely storytelling but it's storytelling that's really informed by her roots as a performance poet yeah um, fabulous show I, I heartily plug that yeah me too um, I saw that and uh, always I always plug Lucy's work anyway because she is amazing yeah, yeah. but that's, that's great I mean, I've seen whether it's storytelling that's from a cabaret perspective so it works in that particular format and looking at the differences there yeah um whether it's someone doing a whole hour of their own sort of life and, and what that means to them. Um, yeah, to sort of come up here and then see, you know, all of the different approaches and the way that different backgrounds, whether it's theatre or performance, poetry or whatever, has informed and influenced the way that people do their storytelling shows. You know, down to have they got recorded music, have they right. got detailed kind of lighting yeah. setups, to what extent are they relying on wordplay rhymes in their story to what extent is it scripted and yeah. how much are they just making it up as they go along right all of these it's fascinating and it's so exciting I guess to kind of come here to because I really feel in the, the art world at the moment that you have so many things that are kind of leaning in on storytelling you so have, this, I think this too yeah. I'm really glad to hear somebody else say it I, I was I was I was I was espousing that that very theory to somebody and uh, the other day and they were like I'm not sure if that is happening no, uh, but I think it really is in response to the way in Pine Park in response to the way that, that funding is getting harder I feel like theatre is increasingly going alright how small a cast can we get right to? and that end up looks, looking like storytelling you've got people performance poets and yeah this has probably been going on for ages but I, I really feel like it's getting a lot of interest yeah. performance poets going yeah no this is good but what happens if I, instead of doing unrelated poems for, to fill all my time, I try and create one journey? Or, yeah. like, say, Sophia Walker, who's doing what is <clears throat> quite clearly influenced by performance poetry, but is this theatrical right. play based on her experiences working in the care system. Yeah, she's moving from spoken word towards theatre. Mm. Theatre is often moving from theatre now towards spoken word and every, everyone's kind of meeting in the middle. And like, it's a playground that is storytelling. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and that's, I mean, partly it's because I run a mixed bill show and I'm get, getting people from all of these different genres. That's part of the reason that I'm kind of noticing this kind of, these trends coming up. Uh, but it's also being up here in Edinburgh. I think, um, and I also think it's to do with audiences wanting that direct response like direct experience of someone talking to them mm. like that, that, that our media generally is moving further and further away from these direct live uh, experiences and yeah. actually people are sort of like craving that a little bit and performers are sort of moving because I mean I, 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 I'm really interested in like because it's coming from everywhere it's not just coming from theatre and spoken word and comedy which are the obvious places mm. that are moving you know all moving together into storytelling it's coming from academia like like you say you're, yeah, you're training so. people to do that mm. but there's lots of nights that are doing that as well like in London there's there's a science show off and a bright club and things like this which is like getting academics to come and tell their stories and then you've got the true storytelling like which Spark yeah. London does uh, and the moth does in America which you reference in, in your show 
Beelzebub, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's and that's kind of happening. And in the UK, that 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 true story, you know, bearing your soul on stage, people telling their their actual experiences. It, it's not a tradition that we've had here, but it is starting to happen here. And it's really interesting to see what happens when uh, the stiff upper lip meets the, uh, op- you know, the open mic. And actually now suddenly, you know, pe- it, I find uh, British people telling these stories so, so exciting because often they're sort of, they're, they're revealing something that they, they never would have revealed ever before. Whereas you get the feeling with a lot of New Yorkers, they, they would have been telling you the same story outside the club. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, it's, so that's a terrifically exciting thing. And it, yeah, and it is interesting that, that everyone seems to be coming from all of these different disciplines to this point of like one person on a stage with a microphone telling a narrative whatever that means there's so many ways to approach mm-hmm. a narrative but yeah and yeah I mean I find it really exciting oh gosh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah it's joyful it's joyful right um, and in some ways I, I can find that this sort of folk storytelling world my my background can be a little bit um, narrow minded in some places uh Narrow-minded is a very like, that's a really harsh accusation, but I think because it, the people that sort of set it up had to work so hard to create this kind of identity of traditional storytelling, um, so I feel yeah I, I do feel like there's a kind of a a generation who like they made that their sole interest and their sole focus, and then some of the people that are kind of coming up behind them are going all right, but. But there's interesting things going on over there, aren't there? What does what does it look like if I do a little bit of that or um, mm. and so forth? So I'm, yeah, I'm really, I'm really interested to see where the art form of storytelling goes. Yeah, well, yeah, me too. I mean, we're obviously we're we're, we're interested partly because we have a kind of a, 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 you know, we're involved in the game, mm. like where it goes is kind of have kind of have an influence on our lives as well. Yeah, but I mean also like. It, yeah, you know, I tell stories because storytelling is the art form that I'm most excited by. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's, and I, I really love listening to stories. Like the, I was at um, a weekend long festival beyond the border, great festival in Wales. I managed to see about fourteen different storytelling performances over the course of that weekend. And you know, I got to the end of that, I thought, yeah, now, no, no, I don't feel full. Actually, I could, I could go and listen to more. Like I, I. I'm voracious. I'm voracious for stories. I've had to really pace myself at Edinburgh because I know I've got to do a lot of work flyering down my performances in the evening. Right, there is that um, conflict, uh, you know, at, at Edinburgh when you're performing of like, there's so many amazing things that you mm. want to see. You want to see all of that stuff, but you're not a punter. You've got a show to do. You've got, to, you've got to market that show. You've got to... Tra- I mean, you're, you've been doing a lot of trudging around with your flyers to, to try and bring them in I mean this, so this is your first Edinburgh right? my first Edinburgh my first Edinburgh at any capacity I haven't sort of come up here as a, as a visitor to the festival before right. jumped into the deep end in some ways um, and actually it's worth probably giving a shout out to the uh, PBH Free Fringe sure for definitely if that organisation did not exist if there weren't people kind of uh, making access to Edinburgh very easy I wouldn't be here. I don't know about yourself, if you think you'd have found... Same. I think, well, I've, I, I, I don't know. I, I, my first Edinburgh was a long time ago. Mm. Uh, I came, I, I started a theatre company at university and we, we brought a show up in between uh, the second year and the third year So um, of university. So that and that time, it was like we, we paid, you know, we'd raised money to do it, but it was, we were in the paid you know, we, we were in the paid fringe, we had to pay the venue money. I mean, it's a, it's, there are so many barriers to people who don't have any funds taking a show up here. Because even when you do the free fringe, right, it's cost uh, me and you a lot of money to get up here. Yeah, I mean, so I'm... much less than if we were, than if, if, if we didn't have the free fringe, we, you know, we, I wouldn't be able to be here, no, not now. Yeah. And I'm quite open about sort of my my budgeting and things I think at the end of the day it will probably the whole of Edinburgh will probably have a cost of about £1,200 for me that's including kind of a per diem of food and getting to see a show or so every right. day um, you know the travel inclusion in the festival programme that sort of things um, and then on top of that you've got all of the work that you're not doing yes exactly. because you were in Edinburgh um, you know and, and obviously Nobody comes to Edinburgh with the expectation of it being, uh, in and of itself, a financially, um, no. 
viable decision. It's right. about, you know, I think for most people, certainly for myself, it's about making those connections. It's about getting a bit of the experience. Yeah. It's about um, seeing what else is available. And like w- w- maybe widening your audience yeah, and getting your more, audience, more people interested in what you do. But you, the, the, most, the most you can hope for is breaking even, generally speaking, mm-hmm. I think. As m- most performers, that's what they'll be hoping for. Yeah. I mean, of course, there's some people who are like uh, at a level where they're, they're, you know, Edinburgh is a, a money-making thing for them, but they 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 aren't on the free fringe most of the time. No, <laughs> so it's yeah, it's glorious that the, the free fringe exists, and good for the punters as well. Actually. Yeah, I think good for good for people as well to be able to, you know, like for me, ten pounds to see a show, that's that's not a small amount no. of money. No, like, no, I I would need to be absolutely certain. That that was going to be right for me to see, um, whereas the whole idea that you can go along and see something by someone you've never heard of that sounded you know, quite intriguing from yeah. the fifty-word blurb, um, yeah, it's grand. Well, that's it. As as a punter, those are the some of the exciting opportunities. Like when the first time I came to Edinburgh, the exciting thing was going and see shows going to see shows you knew nothing about mm. seeing which ones were amazing which ones weren't and you sort of took these chances and that was great um, but I've come back lots of times and I have come to Edinburgh once when I had no money before the free fringe really was on the radar and that changed this thing that was a joy into something that was miserable because every show that I went to had to be good because it was the only shows I was going to be able to afford mm-hmm. and when they were bad it made me resent the you know, resent yeah. the, resent everything about it, and that's not what you want. You want to go and see a, a, a show that's maybe you don't. It's you know what you might say a bad show, but you go well. I'm glad that people are doing that. Whereas you can't think that if if it's costing you so much money. And 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 now I hope that the free fringe means that people can have that experience without very much you know money. All you, all a punter needs to do now is is get a hostel to stay in for a few days in Edinburgh and they wouldn't have to spend any money on any of the shows now if they didn't want to, you know. Though obviously uh, we would advocate that they at least have some money to give donations of at the course. end of the <laughs> Yeah, but then that's the thing, like <clears throat> the amount of money they can give can be different and, yes. and I would advocate that and I, I, I definitely, if people can afford to donate to a free fringe show and they enjoy it, it's quite hard for, to justify not paying any money in, at the end but I also would also advocate uh, advocate for people who don't have any money you know not putting money in the hat uh, because uh, because that's the whole point it's supposed to be a way of supporting audiences and artists but anybody who's wealthy should put as much money into that as possible so that those people who haven't got the money yeah. can go come because we can't do the shows if no one puts money in the hat I had a lovely experience uh, last week where someone had made tablet and I think about the amount of effort that actually went into this they'd made um, some blocks of, of Scottish tablet and then they'd hand wrapped those and tied a little bow on with a little note saying this is tablet because I've got no money to pay for free fringe performances oh, wow. um, warning contains milk like and that was really nice like it was really touching that's they beautiful had, and that felt almost like they'd really met me where I was because here's me I've got a lot of energy but I haven't got a lot of money yet, <laughs> so I'm in a free fringy space and there and so yeah that was so I really that, yeah that really raised I was very touched by that as a gesture no there are there are beautiful moments like that at the fringe mm-hmm. I was at um, a show actually that I was recommending to you earlier on and I'll recommend it to the listeners uh, Bridie Lee Kennedy repeats on you which is a kind of storytelling show moth influenced but funny as well she's a comedian you know, before she put this show together, but it's a, a one-person, really well-constructed narrative about her own life. Um, but somebody in the audience had come in um, for a second time to see her, um, and they had brought some halloumi because they knew that she liked Aww. halloumi. So they, instead of putting money in the pocket, then it's like, here's some halloumi cheese for you to have, and you can't get hold of really. You, you know, you said that you can't get hold of it easily. Here it is. Um, that that seems to be that's that's what that's what the free fringe mm. should be about. Uh, although she's in a, a different free fringe, the freestable. But uh, it's also it, it, there's a lot of free fringes up there this year, and uh, for the punters, you know, they're all as equally useful. And uh, for the for the performers, that we make different decisions about different ones. But yeah, it's, I'm not going to get into that on mine. <laughs> <laughs> we had this little conversation before we started talking about uh, topics to 
avoid. And it's nice that um, it was Dave that managed to accidentally <laughs> get myself in the, in the awkward position. Mm. But I'm supportive of free of of anything that's free for punters and free for free, free for performers to 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 a point of entry at the beginning because that's the thing. It's yeah. it's it's it's. it's and and so often this is the case. It's not just in Edinburgh. You know, we have to pay out money for for venues so often to do our shows and stuff. And it's just for you know I, now in London, I will only, you know, I will try to only get go with venues who allow me to to put on a show for free. And then they'll maybe they'll take a cut of the money that comes in. But it's taken a cut before it before the show's even started. That I, I don't know which limits who can perform. And I think, I think it's sort of reflective of a general trend a difference in the way that people relate to artists and consume art across you know the whole spectrum um because in so many ways the kind of sort of big middleman publishers promoters uh their influence is changing so you have people you know artists that uh, that flog their songs through their own website that right. kickstart their albums yeah, yeah. and things um all of which requires a different relationship with your consumers, right? Um, I I love Patreon. Um, you yeah, I've heard model? of it. Yeah, um, I've only just sort of come up to it, but I'm very excited about that at the moment, just as a way of of saying I like what you make. You know, and it might be uh, it might be little twine, little video games, or something. Yeah, you know, I like what you do. Um, I'm going to sign up to say in advance that I will give you one pound fifty, which isn't very much. For each little game that you make, um, and suddenly you have a, a sort of a business model where people can, on their own time, in their own space, uh, pr- produce content that otherwise, you know, almost, otherwise people would only be able to produce as a as a hobby and as one of those hobbies that kind of you can't necessarily justify. Right. You know, yeah. you can only justify your surplus energy. And time to yeah. So I think it's really exciting to see across the board ways of sort of um, consumers getting different relationships with their artists, artists responding to that, and ways of making performance, making music, um, making art, making games. Yeah, that really, that really sort of celebrate that directness. Right. I mean, absolutely. And I mean, that's one of the things that has always appealed to me about podcasts That's yeah well, podcasts is a great example that, right mm. and so you know so many people now they sort of I hear like comedians talking about how their audiences have, have massively changed since they if they start doing a podcast because suddenly people are coming who know them who have like a director and so many comedians now they you know their their fans come with you know bringing food or drink or all of these things like that and that seems to me so so much more I don't know genuine and real and like you know when you talk about the storytelling tradition like originally storyteller will have uh, will have come to a village and that village will have given them food and drink and mm-hmm. and presents and and things rather than this kind of rather than you know x amount of money per per listen you know and and so and that's a really delightful thing that is happening kind of at the same time as you know as I was, as I was sort of implying earlier on our media is also um, I mean I think it, you know for example we have a renaissance in television that television series are being made in a way that have never been made to this amazing standard before um and that's so produced that's so about money you can't do those shows you can't make game of thrones or breaking bad or any of those things without loads of money and they're they're telling really complicated long-form stories um but at the same time as all that money is sort of uh going into those things uh, at the other end, it's like the money is being drained out and it's just like the basics left and like it's really direct and personal and all of those things. I, I mean, I'm quite excited by these, by both of those areas, but mm. I know which one's more sustainable to a future in terms of environment or, you know, all of those things. Yeah, and I know which, I know which one I want to be involved in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't watch much telly. Um, but we do watch the occasional episode of something. I think that's an interesting sort of shift, isn't it? That, that now, you know, you d- you don't watch a thing every week so much right. these days. People don't necessarily um, watch things as they come out. You get yeah. a lot more of the, the consumption of, uh, like Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad, you buy the DVD box set. Or yeah, well, that's what watch we do. Watch an episode yeah. here and there when you're in the mood for it. So that's, 
Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, we, we, we don't watch TV. We just watch box sets. That's our, our thing. But the, but the thing is, I mean, it's not like we don't... It, it's, it's more like you can't really watch one episode because it's like, you know, you just you burn through <laughs> two days of watching a show. And, and I think actually it's, it's actually with TV, and I won't talk too much about this because it doesn't sound like it's much in your wheelhouse, but um, the, the, the interesting thing I think about these shows going out is that there was a pe- period of time when... Uh, it was becoming less like uh, a, c- a collective experience of watching TV, but now with these new shows being so kind of addictive, uh, it, it has get it is getting back to the point where people do watch them as they come out because they don't want any spoilers for the next mm. week's show. They don't watch them all at the same time. They don't necessarily watch them legally, but they but they but they do sort of like get it as soon yeah. as they can. Game of watch. Thrones broke records for yes. the most illegally downloaded. Yes, it was. But yeah. I think one of the things that's interesting that is that I suspect that a lot of those people who were illegally downloading it will pay for it yeah, in yeah, some definitely. medium at some point. It was just that, as you say, they wanted to make sure that they got to see whatever was happening yeah. before um, before everyone on the internet posted little snapshots of Joffrey um, doing yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's not spoil it. Yeah, let's not spoil it. No, I mean, I, I, so I'm, I'm openly interested in narrative in across all mediums. So whether that's the shift from... Um, TV storytelling where so one of the big changes in TV storytelling over the last couple of years is that writers have been able to to kind of take a breath and go we no longer have to assume that our viewers um, might have missed an episode right like up until relatively recently you had to make sure yeah. that if someone had missed last week's or yesterday you know, if it's a daily soap opera um, and probably it still applies to the dailies uh, so you'd get you'd get a lot of recapping sort of built into dialogue. Daily soap operas are great for this yeah, for yeah, seeing yeah. the the way that people manage to have conversations yeah. that just tell you what happened yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it must be very exciting to work in kind of. The, that yeah, you're right. Go, you know what we're going to have. First of all, we're going to have a narrative that we do tell over separate episodes, rather than each episode kind of almost being a journey away from a point and then back to yeah. that point, so that if you missed one, yeah. Um, yeah, so we've got this. We've got this just a great space to play with. We're actually going to tell, boomf, something a bit more epic and grandiose. Things will change between each episode, and we're going to assume that our viewers are going to keep up with us. Well, it's, yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that's right. I and mean, because people can, if you like, if you didn't get it, watch it again. And if you and, and mm. if you you know, or watch the episode that you missed or whatever, you can watch on demand. And that's that's that does change the way we consume them. But I mean, it, uh, also I think like for. For me, where television is at at the moment, and it's not particularly original, and I've certainly said it on the podcast many times, but it's it's at a kind of point where it's like it, this is where the nineteenth century epic novels uh, were. Like this is the, 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 mm. the television now is it can do something as complicated as Crime and Punishment or or, or, or any of those Anna Karenina or whatever. I mean, or Dickens or something because it, it's a continuous like narrative with lots of different characters that you can see from lots of different points of view. And so, I mean, I don't know. You know things like The Wire or Breaking Bad or yeah even Game of Thrones although that's a very different beast from the other two yeah we, we're sort of able to sort of yeah build narratives that are long and continuous and overlapping and epic and all of mm-hmm. these things that 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 television yeah it, it sort of had to get to this point uh, where it could where all of these sort of things went right and then it kind of really took it that has really taken on a, a quality artistically that people did not think it would you know when it first, certainly when it first came out mm. uh, everybody you know it was a very low art form the um, early days yeah. of television were fascinating I, I have a friend who sometimes comes to my club and tells stories from the early days of television back when it was an amateur hobby because people built their own tv sets in their shed wow and it was sent out on the same broadcast as the radio but bbc basically said all right well at, at midnight when no one's really listening to the radio, we'll have um, we'll have an hour of telly, and that hour of telly was half an hour of the picture, and then half an hour of the audio that went with that picture because wow. they had to work out away from. So you've got to imagine this like incredible, proper, geeky indie, dirty movement that was original TV fans. I mean, like what a what a great place for it to have started yeah. compared to where it is now. It's I mean, just... no, it's true, and it's really fascinating how that's developed. I mean, I'm not, and I'm certainly not not claiming that, you know, I guess in, in comic book terms, you know, this is this is like, I don't know, 
Bronze Age or Silver Age or whatever. Like we've had, there's been te- television renaissances before now uh, that have been equally of interest in, in artistic merit. But what I think is is happening now is it's is it's the, it, the series has become uh, a really quality piece of mm. art uh, in a way that that hasn't been done as much. And there's there's certainly there was there's always outliers. There's always like things you can look back in the past and they're like, well, that 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 was getting towards where we are now, you know. But but yeah, the, the idea of that, that series has really taken on a, a high quality. I should say it's been a great pleasure getting better acquainted with you. And, and I've certainly learned some new things about you, which we weren't learning sort of when we're standing there firing so in the rain, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, the last question that I ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug? And uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're going to have something to plug now. Absolutely. Let me, let me plug um, Rebranding Beelzebub which is in the Banquet Hall of the Banshee Labyrinth every night of the Edinburgh Fringe up to about the 24th at 10 to 10, 9.50 in the evening. Um, and if you come because you've heard about it on this podcast, do come over and say hi and, and, and have that chat at the end. It would be, be really interesting for me to, yeah, to, to get better acquainted with, with you a little bit as well. Um, and then just in general, I guess I want to plug my website, www.timralphs.com. At some point, I'll get back to having... A storytelling podcast. I want to interview people about the craft of story making. Oh wow! Um, and uh, and I do run a club in Sheffield. If you're interested in the sort of storytelling world, Sheffield third Tuesday of the month at the Fat Cat. It's called the Story Forge. Uh, that's fairly easy to find. That feels like enough plugs for me. Yeah. For now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, yeah. Normally, I don't plug as well at this stage, but since I got a show in mm. town, I think I'm going to do it. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, which is going to be the day we're actually recording it, if everything goes right, then I think uh, if you come tomorrow to Stand Up Tragedy, Tim's doing a set, I think I'm right. Yeah, he's, he's, he's giving me the, uh, the non-verbal no, yes, actually, affirmative. Actually, um, probably you know, any opportunity I had to come on at Stand Up Tragedy, I'd be jumping all over. So <laughs> I don't know that I have any programmes. Which, which yeah, I think I you are. I think you are, because I set the tweets and it went out. And it reminded these. I'm setting the tweets in advance, and they're reminding me nicely as well as the as the performers who's on. But um, but yes, yeah, stand up tragedy is happening every day at seven thirty p.m. at the Banshee Labyrinth. In fact, in the same room of the Banshee Labyrinth that rebranding Beelzebub is is on. Uh, we've got a different lineup every night at the Fringe, and I don't I never know what the combination is going to what the mixture of all of the acts is going to result in but every night it's been a, a really tasty and, and exciting mixture uh, that, has, that has been created we've got some brilliant acts coming up as well and the other thing to mention is that uh, I'm doing some live getting better acquainted from the 18th to the 22nd of August at the Royal Oak at 3.15pm uh, I'm doing a series of conversations there that you can come and sit in and you basically it's like what you're listening to now but uh, you're sitting in the room with it and that's with a, a, a number of performers who are up here at the fringe Ch- Ch- your friend uh, Cella is going to be yeah, doing Chella one Quinn's be on, I think the 18th that's so yeah that's right come along for that one yeah so uh, and that's going to be really good so come along and get better acquainted with me in person at the Royal Oak next week and yeah oh, oh, oh and the, the other thing is if you're at the fringe my fringe recommendation uh, there's nothing to do with storytelling really is the show Mega Games that is on at the Banshee Labyrinth uh, I think 9.45 uh, in the evening it pretty much is amazing I've been twice, I'm going to go again It's just uh, I can't even describe to you how brilliant it is but it's an experience thing so if you want to have a late night experience and if, if, even better if you're a bit drunk go along and see Mega Games mm-hmm. it's, it's actually opposite uh, my show yeah that's true um, so go to one one night and then one yeah the, so the I, I'm night. Of, which I, I'm not saying no, mustn't plug. I'm saying um, I'm not going to get to see it I'm going to be oh, here no, so you're not taking any days off no I'm not taking any days off see that's hard working <laughs> that's hard working so you should definitely go and support his show because he is not taking any days off and he won't even be able to see the wonderful mega games because he's doing his wonderful show and it is a wonderful show I mean I I, I, I really did Thank enjoy you, it so much mm. and uh, it was an interesting night to enjoy it when I saw it because you did have a sort of strange heckler uh, drunken heckler in the side so I thought you did very very well still making it a really compelling and exciting narrative Is that the night that someone threatened to throw glass at me? I think I'm it might have sure. been I'm not sure it's, Edinburgh is amazing <laughs> you have to appreciate you have to appreciate when um, you come up here that, uh, that yeah 
that everything that can happen is going to happen right. during the course of an Edinburgh Fringe run. Right. That's, yeah, that's a good thing to mention if you are a performer and you're coming up to Edinburgh. It's, it's a brilliant experience, but it's not just positive. It's everything, everything that you can get from an experience. You will kind of, it's very much a roller coaster of, uh, of experience, and it's worth doing, but be prepared for it. Because I always worry about people who come up and you know, have, don't, don't expect the complexity. You, you seem to have been quite well, well prepared in, some, in I've, some ways. I've had so many people be so generous with the help they've given me in terms of you know, what to expect what to do, little tips for survival. I really feel like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've never been before, but yeah, I was, I was amazed at the number of people when I started coming to Edinburgh who were like, okay, let's have a phone call, and would chat to me for, you know, up to an hour about good survival strategies. Yes. And it's, it was very helpful, so I was, yeah, and I think there is a big kind of pay it forward, pay it on attitude around the fringe. Yeah, and particularly in the free fringe, because we're all, without each other, we wouldn't like be able to do the shows, you know. Uh, that's one of the nice things about doing the free fringe as a performer as well is that that everybody else is your ally. They're, everyone wants everybody else to do well, you know. We're flyering next to people who clash with us, but we're both sort of pointing up the right audience members to the right yeah, shows. Yeah, of course. Because, you, know? you know, that's what we want. We want the people in our things that are going to enjoy it yeah. the most. Yeah. yeah. So... Yeah, and that's really yeah. That's, that's, that's sorry, we're we going on blabbing we here. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're not going. To, we haven't run too long actually, and I, I don't mind running longer. It's it's uh, it's uh, yeah, and, and and you can't control a conversation. They end they they end when they end. You know, unlike an Edinburgh show that has to end bang on time, or you've really screwed up the next people who are coming into that space. So the last thing that I ask uh, my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Getting better acquainted. It's been great fun uh, to be here and chat to you. I hope some of that wasn't boring. Bye. <laughs> Bye, everybody. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.